You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Taking the month of June to kind of talk about why this is important. Why gathering as a church far surpasses doing church online if that's what you can call it. Now look, I'm very, very grateful for the technology that kept us semi-connected through Facebook Live. The very fact that we were able to stream our services every week uh, is an incredible thing. And I don't want to belittle that. But coming back together, I've thought a lot about why it is we do this week in and week out. In other words, why isn't online church enough? Last week we were in the book of Nehemiah and we talked about how we come together weekly to hear from God. And we do that as a church family. We do it in such a way that when we gather to hear in this room, it's different than if you and I are simply taking in information in the context of our living rooms. Well, today we want to talk about the fact that when we gather to hear, we don't only gather to hear from God, we gather to respond to God. And so we're going to be in Psalm 95 this morning, the psalm that I read at the very beginning of the service. And this psalm is essentially an invitation to the people of God to come and to respond to all that God is and to all that God has done for us. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you won't see any sort of descriptor at the top of this psalm, kind of letting you in on the historical setting or who wrote it or anything like that. This is an anonymous psalm written at an anonymous time period in Israel's history. But the invitation of the psalm is incredibly pertinent any time it's read because the invitation comes toward the end of the psalm where the psalmist simply says what? Today. That covers any time period, any particular setting that you and I are called or invited to come in and not only to hear the word of the Lord but to respond to it. The psalm begins like this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Now, O come let us is an invitation that's repeated three times in this psalm. Verse 1, verse 2, and then again in verse 6. And this is the invitation to join the worship of God's people. It's an invitation really and ultimately to reorient our whole lives around the Lord. The very simple invitation of the psalm is the invitation to gather and to sing, as the psalmist says. To to gather and to make a joyful noise, which is what some of us do, right, when we gather. That's all some of us have, the ability to make a joyful noise. And guess what? The psalm gives you permission to do that. The psalm is also a permission to come into God's presence with thanksgiving. And again, 
is the invitation, let us make a joyful noise. Then if you go on down in verse 6, the psalmist says, Oh, come, let us worship, let us bow down. All of these things in response to all that God is for us. We're to be reminded as we do these things week in and week out that this God, the true and the living God, is our God and we are His people. As the psalmist says, that He is our salvation, that He is our provider, that He is our great God, our great King, that He is the creator and sustainer of all things, that He is our shepherd. And we're not just to hear when we come together, we're to heed. We're not just to hear God's voice, we're to heed God's voice, lest you and I come under the same judgment that the people in the wilderness experience, the people who are described in the latter part of this psalm. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll talk about them when we get there. In a real sense... You and I gather in response to what God has done for us. And now as God's people, we gather to respond to Him. We gather in response to God and we gather to respond to God and His ongoing grace in our lives. You see, we gather each and every week, friends, to rehearse all that God has done for us. And all that He is for us. And we gather to recommit ourselves to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I, we gather to do this as participants, right? As witnesses to God's grace in our lives. Not just watchers passively consuming content. What does the psalmist say? Oh, come, let us give praise to the Lord. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise to the Lord. Oh, come, let us enter into His presence with thanksgiving. Oh, come, let us make a joyful noise to the Lord. Oh, come, let us bow down before Him. Let us kneel before God our Maker, before the One who is our Shepherd. For we are the people of His pasture and His sheep. Come, let us, is the invitation of the song. Come, then, let us listen and let us respond to his word. Real quick, if you're just reading through this psalm, you'll notice the movement from speaking to listening. That's always the movement of worship. When we come, we sing and we give thanks to the Lord. We enter into His presence with praise. But that praise from our lips quickly transforms into the kind of praise that simply submits, right? The kind of praise that recognizes that our voices aren't the most important in the room. God's voice is. And so there's this call to sing and to give thanks and then to praise. But then... To bow down, to kneel, and to listen. Because God's voice is most important. 
By the way, that, that means, friends, that when, when you're listening to the word read or to the word preached, you are still actively engaged in worship. You're responding to the Lord by either being attentive or being non-attentive. Now look, if coffee helps you be attentive, have at it. Right? Nothing wrong with that. You and I are being attentive or non-attentive by either receiving the word of the Lord or by resisting it. By pushing the spirit-compelled conviction that you feel to the edges of your mind and your heart. Or by responding with humble confession and humble repentance. By thinking about either how there's somebody else in the room who needs to hear what's being said. Or by first and foremost considering how the word the Lord might have a word for you. By by thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch or by attending to the feast that Christ has put in front of us through His Word. After all, Jesus Himself said, when tempted by the evil one, human beings do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You see, this weekly worship gathering is so vital because it's intended not only to reorient our Sundays, but to reorient our whole weeks, our Monday through Saturday lives around the God who is always there today. The God who's always deserving of praise and thanksgiving. The God who's always deserving of our worship and our listening ear. So the invitation of the psalm is the first thing to notice. It's The first point of response. Oh, come, let us give God the glory that He is due for who He is and for what He's done for us. And as we enter into the psalm and we take God up on this invitation, this psalm then completely reorients us. First of all, it reorients our praise. Look at verse 1 again. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Did you know that you will always praise what you prize? You'll always praise what you prize. The things that we deem valuable they will always find a way of bubbling to the surface and coming out in our words and in our way of life. So what do you like to talk about? What do you like to talk about? What do you like to brag about? What what, what, what do you get excited about sharing with other people? What do you invest your time and your money in? Because it's not just words, it's also actions. It's also the way that we carry ourselves that demonstrates what we find valuable. You see, the goal of weekly worship is to help us prize the one who is ultimately worthy of all our praise. So the invitation is to come and let us give praise to the one to whom praise is due. Now, listen, why why in the world would God call, command, or invite His people to come and sing praises to Him. 
Is God so small a God that he has to have the affirmations of people in order to get out of bed in the morning? That is an objection, by the way, that people raise to the God of the Bible. The God who always seems to be provoking his people to say good things about him and say good things to him. Is God so proud and self-centered that he would demand his people to sing to him? The answer is no. But in a world where people reject God for similar reasons, you and I need to know how to answer those objections. Number one, God doesn't need our praise, but God deserves it. He doesn't need you and I to lift holy hands or to bow down, to kneel before Him or to sing His praises among His people. But you and I need that. God doesn't need our praise, but He deserves it. God doesn't need our praise, but guess what? You and I need to praise God. We were made to acknowledge His worth and to find our great joy in Him. And look, there's no higher thing, no higher being in all the universe that we can praise or prize than God Himself. In other words, you and I were made to find our greatest pleasure in pleasing God. So for God to let, for God to ask us, command us, or lead us to do anything less than give Him the praise He's due, that would be God giving us something less than the very best thing for us, which is what? Himself. Does that make sense? In other words, God loves you too much to tell you to praise anything less than Him. So the worship of God's people is designed to reorient our praise. And so that's what we do. When we come together for worship, we praise Him because He's infinitely worthy. And we praise Him because, well, God made us to find our deepest delight in Him. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. So when you and I come together for worship week in and week out and we lift our voices in praise or we simply make a joyful noise trying, we're simply reorienting the praise that's already coming out of our mouths on a continual basis in the right direction toward the one who is ultimately worthy of it. 
Secondly, the psalmist says in verse 2 that gathering together reorients us to grace. Look at what the psalmist says. Now let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Again, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Weekly worship, friends, is intended to remind you and me that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. Everything we have, we have as a result of God's sheer kindness to us. Everything, from, from the incredible variety of flowers and trees that surround us, to, to the numerous kinds of fish that swim in our streams, to the fact that we were all able to get out of bed this morning, to the fact that God has looked upon our helpless, hopeless condition as sinners and has chosen to move toward us in mercy rather than wrath. All of it is grace. More than that, the fact that God has given us himself in and through Jesus Christ, that is the greatest grace of all. And so Paul, talking to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, everything you have is a gift. Why are you talking as if you're better than other people because you've achieved this measure of success or you've achieved this level of wealth or you've achieved this status in life? Guess who gave all of that to you? God. If it's all a gift then, you and I have nothing to boast about. But we have every reason to give thanks. Every reason. Even those things we think we've earned, those things that we think we've achieved, that we think give us value and worth and status, all of those things are gifts. Which means the only appropriate response is what? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. As God's people, grace is the air that we breathe in and breathe out. Literally. And so when we come together for worship, we come together to reorient ourselves around grace. Because you know as well as I do, that it's so easy to forget that everything is a gift. Which is yet another reason you and I need to hear and to heed the come let us of this psalm. In our pride, we are all prone to take credit. We are all prone to take pride in our accomplishments or our possessions or our position in life. And look, our culture does us no favors here. In subtle and not so subtle ways, 
we are discipled by the world around us that the purpose of life is consuming, gaining, getting ahead, and look, whether it's admitted or not, our value as people in such a world comes to be based on how far ahead of the next guy you are. On how much you possess or, or what it is you possess or, or what the resources you have will allow you to possess. In other words, we live in a culture of more, 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 more. Perfect example is how Black Friday has slowly but all too quickly encroached upon Thanksgiving Thursday. Right? Oh, forget waiting until 5 a.m. on Friday morning. You can go out and do all your shopping right after dinner on the very day that you're giving thanks for the things you already have. That's called cultural insanity. (laughs) It is kind of crazy when you think about it. Because no sooner have we said thank you God than we go out the door to buy more stuff. Gathering to give thanks and not doing it one Thursday a year but doing it weekly as the people of God. It's designed to shape us into humble people who look around and look into our own lives and see that everything we have, we have as a gift from the grace of God. But it's also designed to shape us into people who are like God, who reflect His own heart, who become givers. To become people, in other words, who look and live and act like Jesus. That's partly why giving to the Lord is an important part of our weekly worship. And let me make that clear. When you give to Mountain View Church, you are fundamentally not giving to the church. You are giving to the Lord. Okay? You're giving to Him. Because guess what? I'm not worthy of that. None of us in this room are worthy of that, but God's worthy of it. In fact, God doesn't just want what you put in the plate or in the basket or in the box at the back of the room. How much of it does He want? All of it. Because how much of it's His? All of it. And so what we give each week when we come is a token of thanks. A recognition, God, you've given me so much. I give this to you in faith, trusting that you will use this for your glory. So when we come together for worship, when we heed the invitation of this song, God reorients our praise. He reorients us to grace. But in verses 3 through 5, we learn that gathering reorients our devotion too. Look at what the psalmist writes. We sing. We make a joyful noise. We come into His presence with thanksgiving for or because the Lord is a great God. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. 
Now, that doesn't mean that all of the false gods that surrounded ancient Israel were real things. Now, they were undergirded by dark spiritual powers in the same way that sin is in our day. And it doesn't mean that there are gradations in terms of the power of those spiritual entities. Right? Like, God is the most powerful being in the universe. Everything else is created. God is uncreated. And so we come together, we sing, and we praise because there's no one higher than Him. There's no one greater than Him. The psalmist goes on to say that all creation owes its existence to Him. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Notice that that encompasses everything on planet earth. The sea and dry land. Verse 4. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his. So the psalmist wants to make sure that you and I understand. Sea and dry land, mountains and deepest depth, depths. All of it exists because God made it. Thus, the invitation of this psalm fits neatly right into the first two of the Ten Commandments that God gave to His newly formed covenant people in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Turn there if you've got a Bible. Exodus 20, 1 through 6. Now the people of Israel have recently been freed from Egyptian slavery. They've gathered here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up onto the mountain to receive from God God's covenant stipulations for this relationship. And he comes back and he introduces the people of Israel to what are really just called the Ten Words. What we call the Ten Commandments. And this is, this is how Exodus 20 begins. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you notice? Did you notice that God says you're not to make any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why? 
Because creation's creation, and the Creator's the Creator. God doesn't want us to have any other gods before Him because there aren't any. He alone is God. Now these are the first two commandments for a reason, okay? Get them right and everything else will fall in line. Get them wrong and everything else will be crooked. Idolatry. Idolatry is where it all leads if you get the first commandment wrong. And what is idolatry? It's giving to any created thing the devotion that God alone deserves. And seeking from that created thing the meaning, the purpose, the significance, the joy, and the hope. The salvation that God alone can give. Idolatry, friends, is the biggest problem in the Bible. From front to back, it is shown to be the sin beneath every other sin. And you see, weekly worship, when you and I come together in this place, it's intended to expose all of those God substitutes. And to remind you and I that there is one Lord worthy of our worship. More than this, it's it's intended to help you and I repent of our idolatry and to return to the only one in whom our salvation is secure. What the psalmist here calls the rock of our salvation. And look, make no mistake about it, okay? Idolatry is our biggest problem just as it was the ancients' biggest problem. As Kyle Eidelman, the author of Gods at War, which the men are going through on Sunday, Monday night, says, idolatry is the sin beneath every single sin. It's the one great sin that all of the others come from. That just means that you might not be able to walk around town or to go out and spot the particular temples to particular false gods or goddesses in our culture like you would have been able to do in ancient cultures. It just means we've gotten more sophisticated. So there might not be a temple to Aphrodite, but I guarantee you that sexuality is still pretty much a deity. In our culture, there might not be a temple to Bacchus, the god of wine and food and pleasure, but we sure do like our food and we sure do love our pleasure. We've just gotten more sophisticated in terms of our idol worship. Now, if you want to know what the idols might be in your own life, they're not that hard to discover. Just ask yourself a few questions. What do you not have that would make life worth living if you had it? What do you have that would make life not worth living if you lost it? What causes you to get unrighteously angry? 
A lot of times when our idols are threatened, that's when we get unrighteously angry. What do you run to for comfort when things get uncomfortable? Where do you run for peace when the walls of stress close in? Those are very simple questions that that are intended to help you and I just diagnose those things that we might be trusting in that are not the Lord God. So when you and I come together each and every week, we, we don't simply want to hear from God. You know, what, you know what I want to see happen? I want to see God disclose, defeat, and dismantle the idols in your life. I want to see the idols that we cherish and enthroned in our own lives, dethroned and smashed, just like Gideon smashed the community idol in the book of Judges. I want to see, I want to see the Lord enthrone himself in the very center of our hearts and our lives and our church and ultimately in our community as we go forth and preach the gospel. Each week, each week, friends, when you and I gather We should want to see the Holy Spirit get at the diseased roots producing the rotten fruit in our lives. We should want to see Christ cut off our God substitutes and replace them with King Jesus. And the fruit that comes from being intimately and personally and powerfully connected to Him. Friends, I'm here to tell you, this this is one reason why we are fiercely protective of the time that we spend together in this room on Sunday mornings. Y'all, I don't want anything to take the spotlight off of God. You are fighting the battle against idols out there 166 hours a week. We would be doing you an injustice if we came into this room week in and week out and played church for an hour and a half. It's not going to help you. And it's not going to help me. I want you to give your Sundays and your Mondays to the Lord. Your heart and your home, your fears and your finances. And you and I cannot promote that. If we're simply giving you week in and week out the things that the world is feeding you. Gathering reorients all of us. And I've already mentioned the movement of this psalm from speaking to hearing. So there in verses 6 and 7. There in verses 6 and 7, you see the transition. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice. This is a movement of humility, of preparing to receive from and to respond to the high king of heaven. 
And you and I must be sure that we aren't really listening if we are not responding. More than that, listen, if our worship simply consists of words that are spung, words that are sung, words that are spoken, but unresponsive hearts that do not heed the words of the Lord, then you and I aren't really and truly listening. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, says in his New Testament letter. James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now let's make sure we understand what James is saying. If you're simply a hearer but not a doer, then you're deceiving yourself. Now we've talked about self-deception in our journey through 1 Corinthians so far. So I'm not going to go back there. But if you and I say that we have faith in Christ, but that faith is not responsive to the Word of Christ, if it doesn't translate into obedience, then you may well be fooling your You might well be fooling yourself into believing that your faith is real when it is in fact not. Real faith produces the real fruit of obedience. If you're not listening and responding to the clear voice, let me back up and I want to say this really clearly, okay? Because I feel like I get this a lot. If you're not listening and responding to the clear voice of God in the Scriptures, don't expect to be able to discern the voice of the Lord in other ways. I want to say that again. If if you're not listening and responding to the clear voice of God in the Scriptures, don't expect to be able to discern the voice of the Lord in other ways. In other words, if you're not willing to submit to what it clearly says, don't come to me and say, I think the Lord's leading me to to, to do X, Y, or Z. But you're already being disobedient here. How can you be sure that that isn't just bad eggs that you ate this morning? You see, this is clear. The leading of the Lord in other ways is often not so clear. And if you and I aren't willing to submit to this, we can't expect to be led accurately in other ways. If you're clearly violating God's written word, don't expect that God's going to give you a more specific word about a situation in your life. And if you think that you've received one, it's probably best to think again. As I said last week, we gather to hear from God, but really hearing includes heeding. Really hearing means heeding. Now look, know this. If you're not heeding, it doesn't mean you're not responding. You're always responding. 
You and I are always responding to the Word of God. Rejection is a response. A shrug of the shoulders is a response. Gathering weekly is intended to remind us that the only biblical response to God's voice is the hearing and heeding of faith. I got to tell you a quick story. I was on staff at a church several years ago, and that church was going through a pretty serious time of turmoil. I was the associate pastor at the time, and there were a group of people who had cropped up in the church who were trying to dismantle the the work that the senior pastor wanted to do. And this has happened less than a handful of times in my whole life. But it was one of those churches where like all of the staff members had to sit in chairs on the stage while the senior pastor preached and that's awkward because I'm looking at everybody and everybody's looking at me but I'm not really doing anything and as I sat there the image of um, an oven came to mind and it's essentially this in those moments I can remember the Lord saying the same heat The same heat that hardens clay melts plastic. That means when the heat and the light of God's Word goes forth, the same heat and light of God's Word can harden clay, but it can melt a soft heart. Does that make sense? And I feel like in those moments the Lord was showing me through the faithful preaching and ministry of this pastor, that the word was going forth in faithfulness. But there were some people who were receiving it and there were some people who were not, but they were always responding. And that's the case for every one of us. It's the case not only in this room, it's the case every single day. In fact, that's what the psalmist wants you and I to know. What does he say? He says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the sheep of His pasture, the people people of His pasture, the sheep of His land. Today, if you hear His voice. Y'all, that's the point of the entire song. Today. God is speaking to you and I now through this passage of Scripture, just as certainly as he was to the people to whom the psalm was originally written. And back before that, to the people that the psalmist is writing about. Today, if you hear his voice, the psalmist goes on to say, do not respond like the generation that I'm about to tell you about. What is that generation? It's the generation who hardened their hearts as at Meribah. On the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. What's he talking about? Go to the book of Numbers. Go to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 20.
Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Notice, notice, the people of God here are assembling, but they aren't assembling to worship God. They're assembling assembling to complain against God. Verse 3, And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? This is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went up from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. By the way, this is the point. This is the point where Moses uh, loses his inheritance because he's so doggone frustrated with these people who will not follow the Lord's leading. What did the Lord tell him to do? Speak. And what did he do? He struck the rock. Okay? Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. That scene is the scene that the psalmist is writing about. And the psalmist is here writing particularly about Moses, who did not listen. God gave him specific instructions which Moses here did not follow. It's also about the larger people of Israel who did not listen to the voice of the Lord, but instead complained against the Lord and quarreled with Moses and with Aaron, believing that the Lord had led them out into the wilderness to die rather than that God had always provided for them and that God would continue to provide for them. You see, the the, the culmination of this psalm is a reminder that the choice before us is always the choice of faith or unbelief. It's always faith 
and unbelief, between trust and distrust. When you and I gather every week, that choice is put front and center, and we're reminded that it's always there. It's always there. It's going to be there tomorrow morning when you wake up. Faith or unbelief. It's going to be there Tuesday morning when you wake up. Faith or unbelief. It's going to be there Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Faith or unbelief. Folks, the psalmist, the psalmist is calling us to a place where we remember creator and sustainer of our lives. He is our good shepherd and he will always provide for us, protect us, and lead us in the way that we should go. In other words, the psalmist, by calling the people to come and worship, the psalmist is inviting all of us to have a renewed and unshakable confidence in our God when we walk from this room. And if you guys are anything like me, you need that. You need that. I need that. I want you to have a renewed and unshakable confidence in the rock of your salvation when you leave this building, so, so that you're not trying to chase down substitute saviors throughout the week. The kind of saviors that will do nothing but let you down. No matter how hard you go after them. At the same time, I want to invite up the worship team. Look, I hope the urgency of the call to 